Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name is Stuart Wright, and my guest today is Stephen Johnson, director of Stalker. Welcome to the show. No, nice to have me. Indeed, indeed. We met at the uh, the drinks reception as part of Fright Fest, where you had your world premiere. So while, before we go into the film, do you want to reflect on a world premiere at Fright Fest for us, please? Do you know what? Fright Fest was really interesting. It's my first Fright Fest there or whatever and I really wasn't sure what to expect and you know I, I, I will openly admit horror is not my first forte uh, of a genre where I say oh I'm going to make a horror film so I was kind of skeptical about Fright Fest but the more I kind of understood what it was the more I understood how big Fright Fest was and I've got to say it was I, I it, it was nothing more than people welcoming you uh, with open arms, I just you know that fandom is just so open and so enthusiastic. It was yeah, it, it, that was just an, an, it, it was an amazing experience to have been at Fright Fest for the first time. That statement that 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 bit there at the beginning then raises an interesting question. But before we do uh, about about why why Stalker, but let's before we go into it, do you want to give people a brief synopsis to what Stalker's about? So Stalker is about the character of um, Rose, that's Rose Hepburn, that retains the hair hotel after a long day on set and the elevator doesn't work, so she has to take the freight elevator. And she's joined in the freight elevator by a character called Daniel. And then the elevator breaks down on round about the 12th floor and the film basically follows them for the next few hours stuck in an elevator. And that is it. I'm not going to say anything more because it will spoil anything that happens, but it's two people stuck in an elevator. That's the easiest way. How and when can people see the film? So um, it will be available on DVD and home digital from the 10th of October, I believe. It's being distributed by Kaleidoscope. Um, so it should be on all the major digital platforms from then. And it is available to pre-order on Amazon uh, UK at the moment. You said that horror is not your first go-to thing. So that begs the question, what attracted you to the horror script by um, by Chris Watt? You see, this is interesting. And I think this is something that came out in Fright Fest, which is I don't see Stalker as being a horror film. Mm-hmm. Yet it's amazing how many of the horror fandom say, yes, it is. I looked at it when I read the script for the first time 
I saw it more as a psychological thriller. Because mm. for me, that's what this exchange is. It's about, I suppose, the manipulation of a conversation. Um, so I always saw it more as a psychological thriller. But I think that's my my lack of understanding of what horror actually is. When I think horror, I think blood guts, you know, everything spurring out. I think Hellraiser or Blair Witch. For me, that's that's horror. Um, for this, two people stuck in an elevator doesn't ring horror in my head. And I didn't really approach it as a horror film. Mm. I approached it as a character study that was a psychological thriller. I mean, there's a there's a there's a thin piece of paper between a horror film and a psychological thriller, if we're all honest with each other. And I think what you're saying there is that, in some ways, your 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 look at horror it tends to have something supernatural, which is not of this world. Whereas obviously, two people in an elevator is very much grounded in our world. Um, you know, I mean, the devil. Shyamalan's film about stuck in an elevator yeah. is very much got a supernatural element to it. No, absolutely. And I suppose that's, that was one of the films I went and watched. And I think there's another one called, I think it's Lift mm. or something. It's very, very similar, but it's about, again, uh, it's like five people stuck in, a, in an elevator. And they were references. But again, I would see them as horror with this one. Is, and this is a slow burning character study. Yeah. It's how I envisioned it. And that's, I guess, my approach into that and what attracted me. You, you, when, you, when you first got hold of the script from Chris... At what stage was it at? Because, I mean, I think for, for, for the budding screenwriter here or for the budding director who's looking for scripts, sort of how does that yeah. journey go from you not having a script to make a film of to you going, I'm going to make Stalker? Okay, so how it came about is Chris wrote an original draft of um, Stalker, which at that time was called Freight, and he'd entered it into a competition. And through that competition... Stuart Brennan from Stronghold had kind of read the script and thought, this is an interesting script. And I think this must have been the beginning of the first lockdown, round about that point. Right. So Stuart had seen my previous film, Convergence, at a festival and thought, I'd, I'd like to work with this director. So randomly, round about the middle of the first lockdown, I get an email from Stuart saying, Steve, hope you're well. I'm... Um, I've been looking for a project to work with you on. I think I've got something. Would you be interested? So I was like, well, yeah, absolutely. So at that point, he sent me the first draft of, of, of Stalker. Um, and he said, look, it needs some work doing. I'm going to go off and film this different film. Will you and Chris work on this together? Uh, and so that's what, what we did. We literally... Um, went through Chris's script and you know Chris will jokingly say that I took his script, ripped it all apart, gave him back the pieces and said, go and fix it. Um, you know, and, and, and in a really, really nice way, it was like, well, this needs to happen, this needs to happen, this. And Chris would go away, write a draft, come back, and I would give him more notes. He would go back, he would do another draft. And this went on for probably about four or five months. Okay. To which point we got the script the way it was we presented it to Stuart then Stuart because he was going to finance the film said well I'd like to make these changes absolutely fine so that was about another two months and then it came back to me and it was what it was which was two people in an elevator and it was like yeah okay brilliant fantastic this is a really interesting piece to see how these the dynamics of these two characters I mean and that's and this film is is 
dogmatically about just two people. There are no, I mean, there are there are there are flashes into other worlds, but they're really from the point of view of the two people in the in the uh, yes. in the elevator. It's not it's not about shifting points of view. It's about understanding who these people are and what yes. they're thinking about. So. What what were the storytelling challenges for you and Chris when you were trying to pull when you were trying to pull a script together that you'd both be happy with that would sustain a a sort of feature film? Do you know what I, I think it's when you're looking at a one location script? I mean, for this, you know, bear in mind we were in the middle of COVID and all this, so it mm. was also a, a, an aspect of what can we do with a very small crew in a very small one location which we could knock out in two weeks. Mm. So that was the first constraint we had to work with. And then with Chris's, obviously, concept of being in an elevator, there's not a lot you can do in a six-by-eight room. Mm. So you've got to look at what are all the story beats that can happen. What are the objects that they got, are they going, to be, are, are going to be in there? Um, you know, is there a latch? Uh, is there a hatch or whatever in there? Is there a security camera? Where does that lead to? Um, you know, to, to help create the world. So it was looking for what are all the mechanisms you can use within this six by eight room, because this is inherently a one location. I mean, I, I keep saying it, it's a one location film, but you have one location films that are a big location. Take something like Cloverfield Lane. That's a big underground mm. bunker. So you've got multiple places. Here you have literally a six by eight room and it's, what you can do within that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, so that was a challenge. That was certainly a challenge from a story perspective. But that's when you say, okay, if there's a hatch, okay, how high is the hatch? Have they got something to stand on? Oh, there's a trolley there. Right, okay then. So, you know, how can we play that into things? Is there the security camera? Okay. Well that's going to record everything that happens. So how do we deal with that throughout the story? Mm. You know, um, and then the elevator moves. You know, we randomly have that. This elevator moves and it jolts up and down. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. In the middle of a storm, so you know that's going to add in that 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 I suppose that horror element as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, well, extending that then beyond beyond the story challenges, then obviously Simon Stollen was your, your cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your discussions like with Simon about the look and feel, and obviously about trying to get the most out of? 10 by 8 space what were what were the thing what were you what were the ideas you were coming up with to make to help keep that visually interesting because obviously ultimately it's still a film yeah we had a lot of of, of zoom conversations on the lead up i mean i didn't meet Simon until we were on set on day one mm. but we had a lot of zoom meetings and we talked about uh lens choices how how wide we would, would we, we would go um how tight we would go would we would we do everything handheld? Would when would we have those moments of calm? So again, it was putting in you know having access to a slider or or a tripod, and then at the frantic moments, um, then yes, we go handheld. So we would look at that. I think we used we used a fair amount of wide lenses, but quite close to the actors. Okay. So I think a lot of the time we were on like a twenty five millimeter, but we were a lot closer, which gives a slight change of perspective as opposed to going really, really tight. But that then meant when we did go really tight, it was on purpose. Now, oh. the other aspect of, of this as well is we shot on 
uh, a red helium camera in 8K. So we had that extra resolution. And when you're shooting nine to 10 pages of dialogue a day, Blimey. that's hard going on the actors. Yeah. And if you want to do your standard wide, medium, close up, then they've got to do the same lines. That's three different setups. Do three or four takes. Then you've got to do the other person. So that's a lot of takes there. So one of the advantages that was employed in post is if we didn't get exactly the shot, we could use that higher resolution and go and punch in 50%, oh, which okay. we did towards, you know, there's a certain bit towards like kind of the second half of the film. And we concentrate a lot on lips and eyes and things. Yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of that is, is actually utilizing the 8K resolution and jumping in so you've got the equivalent of 4K. And that gives us that little bit of flexibility on that as well. So it's about understanding the tools that you have so you can get the basics that you need. But if you happen to miss anything, this is where having shooting a higher resolution can help you in, in post. So was that anticipated or was that like a, like a happy accident? I think it was a happy accident, actually. There was some, there was some stuff we openly did not get. You know, yeah. when you're shooting that much amount of dialogue, as I said, yeah, um, it's hard going on the actors. I mean, it's all the film is almost like a play. Yeah, if you yeah. imagine it, whatever, and this and that's how it plays out. Um, and when you're having to repeat that so many times, and it's quite emotive for the actors, it drains them. So the happy accident was we could go and do some of these digital push-ins and things like that. Okay, okay. So, so so in a way, it was still very much part of the creative process as you are in post-production as much as it was the creative process in the production. Yes, exactly, exactly. Again, it's, it's knowing, that I think, the tools that you, that you use is how can that get you out of a hole later on just in case. Yeah. Um, you, you, the other interesting trick you do is you cut to like a – uh, elevator cam or, or or hotel cam sort yeah. of situation, which which gives you the audience a break, as it were, to sort of just get your you know do the do the sums as to where we're up to and stuff, but still be stuck in the room with them, as it were. Is is was that was yes. that was that on the page or was that something that was that was introduced as part of the post production process? That was always on the page. So okay. the script was always. It's a way, and this was one of the things with Chris's original script, is it very rarely left the elevator, mm. which is great from a story perspective of understanding these characters. But from a practical filmmaking perspective, you need to break these scenes up. You need to know where those beats are to come out to, to have the cut point where then you can go move a camera. So there's a practicality there. So when me and Chris worked through our version, we added more of this going to the lobby and all this, uh, going to the reception desk where you see the, the CCTV. I mean, if you actually look on the CCTV, we got a load of footage around where we were staying and there is actually a, a CCTV footage of a bathroom, of a toilet there. So we were trying to, and it's very, very quick, but it, it hopefully kind of shows of how seedy this hotel potentially is that they have a security camera in the toilet. So in, 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 in a way, yeah, because it, it, it helps to serve the, the nature of your story, but also it, it, um, it acts like the establishing shot where you do out, where you go, where a camera will go suddenly outside a house before we go in kind of thing. It had that kind of uh, sort of, it, it helped with the pacing, I suppose, in that sense. 
yeah, it gives the audience time to take on the information that they've just got and for a split second, let them process that before we move into the next bit of dialogue. Casting of Stalker is is yep. is straightforward on one level. You've got to find two people, um, which obviously easier said than done. But obviously, but obviously, one of your cast is also your producer and your financier, uh, Stuart Brennan. He's playing yep. he's playing the, the the male lead to uh, Sophie Skelton's female lead. Um, so I can understand how he got the role. Uh, so. In terms of casting Sophie, where, how, what was your process of finding her? Was she your first choice? Was she uh, an audition? No, I mean, we didn't audition anyone. I mean, like you said, with Stuart, it was pretty straightforward. It was a project that Stuart was designed had and wanted to do for him. Mm. So it's finding who can play against Stuart and also who would challenge Stuart. So we looked at where we could, how we position this character of, of Rose Hepburn. Do we go with someone who is younger and more in line with Stuart? Or do we go with, um, you know, someone who is maybe older than Stuart, which would, again, maybe act as a different interaction, how that would play. So we kind of battered around a load of names. And our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It was, it, we always kept coming back to Sophie. And I mean, Sophie had come up, that was a, a suggestion of my wife. My wife is, a, is an Outlander fan. She's watched all that. Yeah. And every time we kept coming back to what would be the traits, mm. it would always come back, well, Sophie's actually not that bad. And yeah, she plays a very American accent in Outlander. So this is actually very, very different. She plays almost like a, a, a natural accent uh, in this. So that was interesting with that. And I think we, we kind of looked at, you know, who could we go with? And it, I said, it always kept coming back to Sophie. I, I, I don't know why that was. The, the name went on the list and we just kept coming back to it. So we were lucky enough that, you know, we, we went, we reached out to Sophie's agents and, you know, luckily she said yes. Fantastic. Now, when, when you've got sort of two characters who, who, who are the story um, and, and, You've basically you've only got two relations, haven't you? You've got her relationship yeah. with him and his relationship with her, and then you've got the great thing about drama, which is both of them are looking for someone to trust and or the truth, and both of them yes. have their own truth and they're not showing each other at all, and that's the nature of Stalker in a nutshell for me. Um, so, what was your conversations like with the with them as performers to sort of because it's about power, isn't it? In a way, one they know that, that what they know is is putting the other one on the wrong foot until obviously things take a turn for the horror 
as it were. So what were your conversations like with your, with your actors in terms of what you wanted from them? Certainly in the for the first half of the movie, where it's all about, you know, feeling your way around who who the hell is this I'm in the lift with? Well, we did we we had separate conversations in pre-production. So yeah. once Sophie was on board, again, there was a couple of Zoom meetings, and I think we had two or three Zoom meetings where we would go through the script and we would look at each of their characters individually. So we did that with Sophie, we did that with Stuart. So they would understand their strengths and what they were going to be putting across per scene mm. um, to make sure that, you know, we weren't... That as a director, you've got to look at the whole, that the two performances are going to work against each other, in effect, because that's where the conflict comes from. Of course. So Sophie always understood what her motivations were for the scene, where she'd been, uh, where she was going. Part of this, which helped, was the fact that we shot everything in sequential order. I was just going to, I was going to ask actually, was you able to do it in, in linear form? Yeah, no. And we did that in linear form. I think the only time was we had some time out. We had an afternoon out to shoot the opening scene uh, before they get in. And then we actually visited a separate location to get the revolving door. The crew loved that because we weren't in the elevator for that, that afternoon. So that was kind of like a field trip. Um, (laughs) But the fact that we shot it linear was great because they always knew where they were the previous day and where they were going for the next day so oh, they right, could get themselves right. So out with that conversation, we obviously didn't get much time to rehearse. In fact, we didn't get any time to rehearse. So the great thing with Stuart and Sophie being both professionals is they would get up sometimes at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and they would go down and they would have their coffee and they would run through the scenes for the day and they would spitball and mm. um, basically challenge, almost challenge each other, which was really nice. So when they came to set, I kind of knew what had to happen throughout the day. And they would come say, well, do you know what we were going through? Like Rose wouldn't say this or Daniel wouldn't react quite like that. But we've, we've worked out something like this. And this is great. This is the reason why you work with, with professional actors yeah. is they bring, they, they heighten up the performance and they come with their own ideas. And again, their ideas are normally kind of built on what the foundations are, which is the script. So it was always going to be constantly improving. Um, so they would do that each day. So that, that made it almost interesting because sometimes you never quite knew what they were going to do, which I think was, you've got to be open to that and you've got to be flexible enough to that. You know, I'm not a director that says that's what's on the page. You have to stick with that because then you just lock them into one way of thinking. They're bringing their expertise and they are embodying that character. And if they want to come with something, let's try it. If it works, it works. If not, you go and you retweet those things. Now, obviously, you said Stuart had a hand in in sort of the, the later stages of the script development. So, for his character's point of view, he's literally had an input on it as much as as much as he's able to then deliver a performance. But obviously, Sophie didn't have that. I didn't have the benefit of that involvement during development. So, in what sense did you see Sophie do on in the production that you couldn't have imagined on the page? Where she she took what you thought the character was going to be like, and then. Gave you something, and you th- can you think of an example of a, of, a, of, a, of a scene that you shot where she her de- decision she made in the moment, as it were, when my God, yeah, that's Rose. It's difficult because I think for me, once you cast someone, they embody that. Now, I think what 
like Sophie and, and, and Stu also did as well, was it was the little nuances that they would bring. Mm. So if you're on set and you're watching them and then they're having a, a dialogue exchange and suddenly Sophie or Stuart would just give it a look or there'll be something, whatever, and you go, oh, that's not on the page, but that's lovely mm. because she, like, Sophie's reacted to a line that Stuart's given. It's like, oh, what could that mean? What could that look mean? And that was like, oh, yes, okay, that was brilliant, whatever. Um, so there were lots of those little moments, and the same for Stu. Um, I know from, from the room that we had the set in, there was um, the tarpaulin, some of the, the um, windows up above. And obviously, when you're filming on the south of, of Scotland in November, in October, November, the wind gets up. So the tarpaulin was flapping at times. Um, and I, th- that was kind of getting annoying for the sound guys. And I know I, I said to the guys, look, if the tarpaulin's flapping, look up. Because we know in the film, there's a storm happening. So if they look up, it helped kind of imagine the world was also out there. So oh, that's again, interesting. it was little things like that. Obviously, we took out the flapping of the of, of tarpaulin, but you know, we established at the beginning of the film there is a storm going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if they were so sometimes I can look at the film now and when Stuart looks up, I go, ah, that's when the tarpaulin was flapping up there, whatever. <laughs> but he's reacting to like the storm, and I think we've mapped in some uh, thunder and lightning strikes and things like that that happen like that. But it's it's little things like that that you know, when you're working with a certain caliber of actor, that's what they bring. And I think that's sometimes where, where they say the magic happens. No, it sounds like, no, I, I mean, I can picture some of the moments you're talking about, but obviously for you, they must have come as genuine surprises where you're, but obviously a surprise in the sense of there's an opportunity for, for the film to be better. Yeah. I mean, certainly for, for, for you know, to, for, for, for certainly the last act, that was really the exciting part of seeing you know, the characters transforming. Mm. Uh, and I'm trying to choose my words very carefully so the listeners are not going to be spoiled by anything. But it's kind of seeing how those transformations kind of of each of these characters happen within that. That was really exciting. When you got into the edit with this, what were what were some of the things you discovered about the story which wasn't evident during the writing of it? And how did it how did it begin to evolve in that sort of the last the last phase of making the film. So, so with the edits, uh, we were obviously. I think we were in. We were in another lockdown when the edit was being done. So, there was not the ability to do the traditional of going to sit there with the editor and 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 do that. So, when Mark Wake, who was the editor, he he did the first pass of of the edit, hmm. and it was good. And we were still trying to find some of those beats. You know, every six or seven pages, what have you. Um, but the last act was very linear, and it is very linear in the in the script. Mm. The last act is is extremely linear, and there was just something about that last act that just wasn't. It was all there, but there was just something missing. So I, be, I believe Stuart said to Mark, "Go and try something extreme. Just you know, just try something extreme." And Mark came back with the second edit. And that whole third act was completely different, mm. you know, and it, it t- t- to what it is now in the final film. And it's very unlinear mm. in a sense, um, which I think adds the horror element in there. 
because we've got this nice little dialogue thing that goes along and stuff happens, but you get into that last act and you're not quite sure what's happening. And that was genius. That was absolutely bad. And that's something which we wouldn't have found on the script, on the script stage, mm. but we found in the edit process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely, it definitely comes off the rails, as it were, and you're you're mm-hmm. not as sure as what of what's going on as you probably thought you were for the first half, certainly for the first half. Yeah, and it kind of it sells because one of the characters is not quite sure what's going on. Mm. But, so, but to be honest with you, though, I, I almost think as well that the I know you said it was it, it helped with the pacing and stuff, but the and and the cam footage also lent lent a little bit of a kind of, oh, what does this mean? You know, you were, you were, you were computing that alongside the drama in the lift because you're thinking, well, who's, who's watching on the cam then, you know? And that yes. that adds to the, the trickery of what the story that's unfolding, even though it's maybe not as overt as the dialogue that's going on, but it certainly did. Yeah. It's, it, 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 as well as getting you out of the lift, it made you think what's going on in, outside the hotel. Because like you say, we, we open with her walking around a, an an empty hotel and finding nobody to talk to and then meeting Stuart in the lift, as it were. Um, yeah. One of my favourite lines where it was kind of where, it, you know, it began to sort of made me think, well, what's going on here? Like, so when, when Rose says, I prefer actor over actress, you, you suddenly, you suddenly don't, you, you I began to, start thinking about the relationship between the two of them differently almost from that point on it was almost like it was like the first signifier as as to who's in control who's in not in control of this this situation yes yeah there's there's lots of little lines that there's there's a couple of lines before that that are dotted around mm. that throw that conversation of who where is the power mm. within this dynamic um Daniel has a few lines. Um, I think there's there's an earlier one when uh, Rose is it's leaving a voicemail for Grant, and she says, "Oh, I'm stuck in the elevator with," and she suddenly forgot what Daniel's name is, and Daniel says, "Daniel," mm. you know, and it's just, again the tone of that, whatever. It's where does that power dynamic move around this room? And, when, and and I won't give the context, but if I give you the line, you'll know what I mean. Um, when when Rose says she's going to make him see stars, suddenly you're it's like being let off the lead almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely line of dialogue in in the sense of what you've been building to. Yes, you know, and, and again, that's the it, it's it's weird trying to talk around this for the listeners. Um, yes, yes, no, I'm I'm trying myself. I'm trying myself. Exactly, whatever. And, and the listeners have seen seen the film uh, after the 10th of October, then you should know at which point we're talking about. But really, to can be able to, to show that dynamic, and that then is true power. And then what I'm hoping is you'll go back to the beginning and re-watch it, look for what with the little moments. I know when, you know, that was one of the, the notes I gave to Chris early on, which was how can we plant these little bits so when you get to the end, someone could go back and re-watch something in in the way that you would go and watch maybe The Usual Suspects or something like that, mm. is what were the little nuggets there that pointed to whatever was going to happen? No, for sure. Yeah, there's definitely breadcrumbs to uh, 
to uh, to yeah. let us understand where you were misdirecting us and where you were leading us astray and where you were actually leading us to the destination. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I don't know what did uh, what involvement did you have with the post with the poster design because it's a really interesting image that you've gone for. Um, actually, the poster design was all done by Kaleidoscope. That was all the, the distributor. Because, you know, as, as I said, you know, we worked when we were shooting it. It was under the title of Freight mm. because they're in a freight elevator. Yeah. Um, so that's that. That was the working title. That's what we were working to. So it was really interesting to see once um, Stu had taken it to Kaleidoscope, and they decided to package everything up. And it was a really interesting poster. I when I first saw it, I was I just went giddy. Yeah. I get a, a kiddie moment. It was like, oh wow, this that that this looks good. <laughs> no, 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 because obviously, like you say, it, it 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 speaks to the genre of psychological thriller. You know, you've got you've got it all there in that image. Yeah, it was very much. It reminded me of uh, the Robin Williams one-hour photo yeah. poster. Very, very similar to that. Whatever with that, with kind of Stu's face there, and then Sophie in the middle, whatever. So. But yeah, hopefully it plays to the title that they then ultimately used, which was Stalker. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, let's remind people then, when can they, when, when and how can they see Stalker? So Stalker is out on DVD and digital on the 10th of October. So it should be on the likes of iTunes and, and wherever. Uh, but you can pre-order it on Amazon right now. I think it's uh, the brilliant price is $7.99 for the DVD. And it is a certificate 18. I'd just like to say we found out that at Fright Fest. We were looking at the BBFC website whatever so we were made up that we got our 18 certificates so that should give you an idea of what to expect it does uh, what do you say it does go, it does go to low, low levels of uh of depravity that you expected a horror film um good well i i, I hope so and if we've achieved that then that's good <laughs> I, I, at least well i hopefully if i can make one proportion of the viewership cringe towards the end then that would be really good no, no, no. Let's hope we get more people to see stars. And on that, Absolutely. it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. No problem, Stuart. Thanks a lot for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.